Amen. Well, uh, if you want to turn your uh, Bibles to 1 Corinthians 2, our text will come from verses 14 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For a subject this morning, I won't uh, go through sort of um, a long introduction. Try not to anyway. Um, but for a subject, we'll use natural inability and spiritual ability. Natural inability and spiritual ability. So 1 Corinthians... Second chapter, at the end of the chapter, will be verses 14 through 16. Verse 14. The natural person, excuse me, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let us bow one more time briefly as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day of your glory, for this time of refreshing through the word. We thank you for the remission of sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for infusing uh, to us and attributing to us your grace and your um, complete favor uh, that we could not uh, lay claim to anything and boast of anything. We pray that you might allow the word of God to penetrate um, our ears and let it um, give glory to you and let it magnify you and let our hearts be joyed in the fact that we are hearing the word, that the word live richly in us, and we pray that we might be able to have opportunity to share your word with those who are outside. In the name of Jesus Christ, do we pray. Amen. In the heart of many unbelievers, there is this notion that all there is is the natural world. They reject the idea of spiritual things altogether. But in a naturalistic, contradictory fashion, they wouldn't reject the idea that there are also intangible things like truth, love, even logic itself. We know, those of us who have been called by God through the divine nature and saving power of the blood of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit unto salvation, we know that that philosophy, that way of thinking is self-refuting. In order to deny that logic exists, you have to come to a logical conclusion about logic. In order to deny truth, you have to make a truth claim, therefore refuting your own position. This is why the Apostle Paul is laboring on this very point. How could a person be so smart but deny the laws of logic and then with the same breath make a logical assumption? 
How could a person be so smart and yet make truth claims and then out of the same mouth say that the truth is relative or not absolute? This is absurdity. This is foolishness. But the people that do this do not have the wisdom of God because they lack the spirit of God, who is God, the Holy Spirit. This is exactly why the Apostle Paul says in the first chapter of Corinthians, verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren, now that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. You can have all the philosophical wisdom of the Greeks, the greatest thinkers. You can have all the linguistic penmanship of the scribes or the astute degrees and the offices of the Jewish Pharisees. But without the spirit of God, you will not have true wisdom, true discernment and true understanding. And so without true wisdom, what do you have to fall back on? Ultimately, you can only fall back on foolishness. Those that are opposed to God to profess themselves to be wise and calling those who trust in God fools. They would say we are the fools. The logic come full, comes full circle and they themselves end up being fools because they deny the very spirit of wisdom. Where the unsaved man believes God's gospel is foolishness, it's actually the power unto salvation, which is the wisest place to be or state of mind you could ever be blessed to be in. But that brings us to our text today, because as stated, there are many that only believe in the natural world. Their wisdom is natural. Their understanding is natural and their thinking is natural. So the subject for today's message is, of course, natural inability versus the spirit's ability. Let's go back to verse 14. It reads, but the natural man receives not the things of the spirit, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Natural. In the original Greek language, the word sukrikos, it is used in other portions of scripture like James 3.15 and Jude 1.19 to mean worldly minded. The text in James says sensual. In other words, natural people can only discern what can be attained by the five senses, a worldly sensual wisdom only. So when we see the word natural here, it doesn't mean normal or what is common or normative. No, this natural wisdom, this natural within the context is showing a contrast between that which is spiritual. They are natural. We are who are saved spiritual. They do not have the spirit of God. We have the spirit of God. It means their thinking, their understanding is strictly naturalistic. This means even those people who claim to be spiritual can still only gain a naturalistic knowledge. All they can ever gain is natural, earthly, man-centered knowledge. Remember when you were not saved? You didn't get it either. In my experience, there are really two types of Christian testimonies. 
You have the Christian testimony where a person was completely oblivious of what God required and who God is. And the educated person who knows about Christ or knows of God probably can even recite verses or even give you a humanistic explanation. But they themselves lack the salvific wisdom of the God for a total understanding of scripture. The best telling sign that you know that someone only has a natural understanding of God or the things of the spirit is because there will be no change in their behavior, no change in their actions. They naturalistically realize their sin. They would say, I know sexual immorality and promiscuity and sex with multiple partners is bad for me. They will weigh the natural consequences like running the risk of getting a disease or having a child out of wedlock or with a person they don't even know. But they do not weigh the extreme cost of sin against their creator, which will bring spiritual judgment and condemnation on their own soul. Some will even know what the Bible says about it, and yet the natural man can only give into the flesh because without the spirit, natural wisdom blinds them from the truth. The earthly pleasures of the world and all that it offers are better to a natural man or woman than God's word. Why? Because they lack the spirit of God. The spiritual things of God are foolish to a natural person, a fleshly person, an earthly thinking person. It is silly to them. Love my enemies. Well, that's stupid. If they don't love me, then I'm not going to love them. You see, the natural man has not the understanding of God. What if Jesus had that same natural understanding of what love is? Seriously, what natural man, what parcel of mankind would love God first? Israel in the Old Testament was even given the very law of God, where the first commandment was to love the Lord thy God. They read it, they recited it, but they couldn't do it. If God was wanting us to love him first out of a natural heart of reason, then no one would ever be saved. And we would all perish because before God gave us his spirit, we hated God and were enemies of God. But in our mess... In our sinful state, God loved his enemies and removed the enmity between us and himself by sacrificing his son that we might be pulled out of our dead natural state into the marvelous light of salvation by his spirit. Then the text says this, neither can he, the natural man, know them because they are what? Spiritually understood, discerned. The things of God are spiritually understood, dissected, examined, evaluated, weighed, measured. See, the natural man is looking for a condition, a circumstance, a coincidence. The natural man looks for a materialistic explanation for spiritual things. They would say, if God is real, then why doesn't he show himself? 
Show me proof that God is real. I would say you're looking at a transformed miracle. But even that to a natural man would be white noise. But see, the spiritual proof isn't enough for the natural person. Because these things are spiritually discerned. No instrument that man creates will ever be able to measure or test God. The way I explain it to unbelievers is that it will be similar to trying to hit a ghost with a baseball bat. Likewise, trying to find God with a natural heart is trying to hit a, a, a ghost with that same baseball bat but failing over and over again. It's like trying to use a ruler to find out how much does water weigh. In other words, there is nothing wrong with the instruments. You just don't have the right equipment. In Matthew 6, excuse me, Matthew 16, 1 through 4, we see an example of this. The Pharisees, also with the Sadducees, came and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Show us something naturalistic. He answered and said unto them, when it, is evening, when, it is, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather for the day, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, the natural, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. You cannot discern the time that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the spiritual savior of the world who has come unto you. You can't discern it. Matthew 16 again in verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked the disciples saying, Whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thy Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, Peter, this is not natural wisdom. This is not a philosophical epiphany that you've come to. This wisdom, this prophetic understanding of the spirit, which you could have only uttered by revelation from the father. You could not have known or recited without the spirit of God. Flesh and blood, the natural did not reveal this to you. Natural wisdom can't reveal. It can only read and recite. It cannot make whole because it is incomplete in and of itself. It is limited. This wisdom, this revelation could not be gotten by natural means. Only the spirit of God who divinely uncovers all mysteries to believers could give this to you, Peter. Let's look at the next verse in 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 15. It says, but he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. 
This is not a pointing of the finger type judgment. This is a discerning judgment, a judgment of character, a judgment of danger, a judgment of circumstance, a judgment of of the times, as Christ just said. It can also be understood as a judgment of condemnation or accusation that can be thrown at the believer. People will say to you who believe, you used to do this. You used to be this way. How can you preach the gospel to me when I know who you are? And all that may be true. But you have to understand that you have now been covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you can't be judged because you have Christ's righteousness attributed to you. So who can accuse you? Who can judge you? No one. This is not some feigned statement to sort of stave off the accusation of true sin. This is talking about in the spirit, who can judge those who have been truly saved through Christ? As a believer, you have been sealed with perfection through the power of the Holy Spirit. The sin that kept you hostage, the sin that held you captive to condemnation has been paid for never to be in any debt again to anyone. No one can judge you. This is familiar in Romans 31, excuse me, um, in Romans 8 verse 31, it says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. No accusation can be laid at our feet because we have a savior who advocates for us in the spirit. In the spirit, Christ advocates for us, but not only that. The same love that we talked about earlier, love is not just a feeling. Love is not just what we think in sort of a naturalistic sense. Love is action. Christ, love for his bride, he came into human flesh, took upon that flesh, came into a body, lived as a man to take the sins of man. The only worthy sacrifice, able to do so. Also, Love works. Love commits itself to a particular action, and he committed himself to the same laws the scribes and the Pharisees could not fulfill, the same laws that Israel in the Old Testament could not find themselves to complete. Christ completed all of that for us. And so, who can lay a charge when the debt has been paid? And even now, Christ makes intercession for us. Let's look at the last verse. 1 Corinthians 2 and 16. We'll wait here for a minute. It says, 
For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The full mind of the Lord is something that we can't fathom. But we have been given minds that have been renewed. In the world, we were unsanctified sinners before God. In Christ, we are fully sanctified saints in his kingdom. But the mind of the Lord is an unfathomable thing. It is a blessing that we share in this mind. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians and turn over to Isaiah 40. Let's look at the mind of the Lord, the mind of Yahweh. Isaiah chapter 40, let's go up to verse 12. Isaiah 40, 12, it says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Isn't that amazing? It says, it asks the question, it is rhetorical. Only God can measure the waters because he created it. Only the Lord could mete out the heavens and how far they stretch. Only the Lord could measure the earth and everything that is in it. Only God can uh, put the stars in the sky and name them by name. But who has done this? I like the fact that the author uses a bunch of natural things. And he, and he shows the incapability of man because he asked the question, who has done this? A naturalistic scale cannot measure these things. A naturalistic instrument cannot weigh these things. Only the spiritual Lord can. Look at verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor, has taught him. This same God that measures and weighs everything that is naturalistic cannot be counseled or taught anything because there is no one who can do those things. Who can do those? Only the Lord. Verse 14. With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the islands as a very little thing. Again, no one can counsel the Lord because he knows everything. Jesus Christ is the embodiment or the bodily form of the Lord who has come and no one can counsel him. This is the reason why multiple conversations, Jesus wasn't just having conversations to have them, he defeated them because he is the Lord of all logic, of all truth, of all words, and all understanding. Who is like the Lord? No one. Skip down to verse 22. 
It says in Isaiah 40, verse 22, it says, It is he that sits upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretches out the heavens as a, as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. In the area of science and academia, men thought that the universe was infinite. We could talk about stars and redshift of outer space, but long story short, the universe is not infinite. We understand that it began at a certain place and time. Man would say the Big Bang. Christians, we would take it further and say it was the word. There was indeed a large thing that happened, but it wasn't just a bang out of nothing. The God of the universe is the one who sits upon the circle of the earth and measures all the inhabitants and sees them as grasshoppers. I think this is the reason why David, the psalmist, says, what is man that you even care? He said, I am but a worm before this great and powerful, awesome, infinite God. But this is the mind of the Lord. Look at verse 23. This same mind, this same understanding, this God who sits in the heavens and sees mankind, as the writer says, as grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens as a curtain. It says in verse 23, that brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Every single argument that was brought to Jesus, he brought it to nothing. He made their understanding of everything completely naught. They tried to challenge him at every point. He answered their question in such a way to where he would, he would even ask a question. There was one portion of scripture where the Pharisees, uh, being naturalistic, he questioned them. He said, is John the Baptist a prophet? And then they responded and says, if we say that he's not of God, the people will come after us. But if we say that he is of God, then he's going to be right. And they molded over between themselves, and finally they said, we do not know. We cannot say. See, when the truth pierces, people will even deny the truth. It is what we call cognitive dissonance. But who can we associate with the mind of Christ? Look at verse 25 of Isaiah 40. It says, to whom then will they liken unto me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things. That brings out their host by number. He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one fails. Jesus Christ we have been given this mind of Christ, this wisdom of God. In the previous verses, Paul labors to talk about how we are fools for Christ, how the cross is foolish to preach, how the preaching thereof and the good news of the gospel is foolishness to the world over and over again. 
But we see God uses the foolish, the weak, and the small to confound those who are wise in their own conceit and the mighty in the world. He tears down kings and kingdoms because his kingdom will never end. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. At the end of the verse, but it says here, but we have the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ. Here is the blessed beauty and gracious abundance of our salvation. We have the mind of Christ. This means that our natural understanding is filled up by our spiritual understanding. When we look at the stars, sure, we know they are balls of gas burning in outer space, but we also know that the Lord created each and every one of them, and he knows them all by name. We, we can look at the heavens and say, we serve a God, a Lord, that by the word of his power brought each and every one of them that we see with our natural eye into existence. But by his spirit, he sustains all of them by that same word and spirit. Turn to, turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Scroll down to verse 27. Matthew 8 and verse, scroll up to verse 25. Let's get some context here. Excuse me, verse 24, sorry. Matthew 8, 24. It says, and behold, there arose a great tempest, a great storm in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. Verse 25. And his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We die. We perish. Verse 26. And he said unto them, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Let's pause right here for a second. Here you have a boisterous storm in the waters of the sea. The waves are crashing, water is flooding into the boat. All of the natural senses tell us that we're going to die. But we have life on the boat with us. Everything that a natural man could ever see, which is just as far as his knowledge can take him, will tell him that this is the end for him. And Jesus, Jesus replied with a spiritual answer. He didn't say, oh, ye of little lifeboats. He didn't say, oh, ye of little crafts that can take you off of here. He didn't say, oh, ye of little strength to swim. He replied with a spiritual 
answer to a naturalistic problem. He says, O ye of little belief, trust, faith. For we don't walk by sight, by the natural. We walk by what? Faith. Then he got up. He arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. It went from boisterous and a monstrous storm to waves crashing in from all sides to we are about to die. And then Jesus speaks and rebukes the natural world and then it's calm. Verse 27, they were amazed. They marveled, the men marveled saying, what manner of man is this? that even the natural world obeys him. That even the winds and the sea listen to what he says. This doesn't make sense to a natural man. I was about to die, but Jesus Christ calmed the storm. My salvation does not make sense to a natural man because I was dead, now I'm alive. Because even the natural world obeys him. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 2.16. We see the marvelous nature of Christ is that even the natural world obeys him because he created the natural world. He measures everything within a span of his hand. He sits upon the circle of the earth, but he has the control of the spirit as well. See, that was the Lord putting on display his power over every natural thing. And this is the mind of Christ. That when we have circumstances that we go through and every natural thing cannot solve the problem. Just like the woman with the issue of blood. What does the text tell us in the history of the story? It says that she had visited everyone, every doctor, every physician. She had tried everything. But she said, if I can just touch the hem of his clothing, I know I'll be made whole. She had exhausted every natural resource she could, but she knew or heard about Jesus. This is what I would implore you. Scripture says that Jesus is, of course, the only one who can save men and the gospel therein. How much more are we to be invigorated knowing that we have this great monumental truth and not share it with someone else? The spirit is the only thing that is able to save. Not a book, not a rational argument, not conversations about the calm cosmological outer space argument, but only the word of God through the Holy Spirit will save men. We need to share it. This is the mind of Christ. Because Christ commands all men everywhere to repent and turn to him. And through his power, we will be saved. That is the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is that we are in Christ, 
we have an understanding of the natural and the spirit. Together in Christ, we have both. And that is the spirit's ability that is why we lean not to our own naturalistic understanding, but in everything, in all things, we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in him because just like on the boisterous boat, just like in 1 Corinthians when they were having all sorts of church problems, just like you and your personal issues and problems, the only one you can trust is not a president or an emperor or a king of natural means, not a remedy of natural means, but it will be in the Lord Jesus Christ who saves our soul. Let us remember that and remember Christ as we trust in the things of the Spirit and the Spirit's ability. We cannot trust in anything that is natural because it will fail us. Put not your faith in the arm of flesh, for it will indeed fail thee. But put your hand in the hand of Christ. Put your soul in his care and your faith and trust in him because he has already saved you. Amen.